Okay, this is the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. I am your host, B Magic. I got my brother Noise with me. Yes, and we have a very special guest on today's show. Um, someone with a long resume, long list of accomplishments. Uh, it's going to be hard to kind of keep this episode to about an hour, but we will try to do our best um, just to kind of go into some of that resume. So this individual is a DJ, a producer, um, an events organizer, a sound curator. She has done work on Broadway. She's worked with the likes of Wyclef to Punjabi MC. She's been curator at the Brooklyn Museum. She's lectured at NYU, okay. named one of the most influential South Asians by Newsweek and a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> Can you send uh, that to my mom? <laughs> <laughs> Got to remind him. Uh, she also is currently a host and producer of Bhangra and Beyond on BTR Today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. DJ Rekha, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to talk with you guys. Yeah, we're, we're, we're putting together a list of names for people who kind of would be a great fit for the show, just like the concept of the show, as well as people who have just dope stories to tell in general. And yeah, nobody embodies the, the concept of the immigrant hustle more than <laughs> you, I feel. It's kind of like taking the South Asian as well as the North American and just blending it all together and you know building an empire off that. Well, I am. I, I hardly have an empire, but thank you for thinking such. <laughs> I have used the word immigrant hustle in an interview in the New York Times, so I do believe I deserve to be here. So <laughs> I also take issue with the Scarface picture because I'm a I'm a Godfather person myself. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I couldn't get into Scarface. It was too violent. I know the Godfather's violent, but you know. My thing was I was just uh, I was just a a young boy, young Punjabi kid who uh, obviously liked a lot of gangster movies mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. freshly moving from Norway to Canada. I, I oh, guess wow. I related to certain things, but. Uh, yeah, definitely did not see the plight of Tony Montana, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll save that argument for another okay, day. Okay, that's offline. But yeah, Sorry. like Noise said, you are, you are in a sense an OG to the whole South Asian community of artists, you know? I don't, want, I don't mean to uh, age you or anything, but okay. you, 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 have, uh, you, have set, um, the, you have set the stepping stones for a lot of people who look like us that want to get into the music scene. And uh, today we kind of want to get into that. But uh, like we always like to do, and uh, we kind of want to get into your whole family's immigration story before we get into your musical journey. So where did your family come from and where did you guys immigrate to? So our story, starting with my parents... They were both born in what's now Pakistan. They were very young and they, you know, moved moved to India uh, during partition. They were six and seven. Um, I have pretty much a lot of my dad's story via his father, who has since passed after talking to him several times. I don't have much of my mom's story because she doesn't really remember it. So they, they grew up in Delhi. And they were, in a sense, also first generation, going from a rural-ish, you know, background to a, to a city, to a city in a new country, and an emerging country, a young country, not a new country, a, a new and young country. And then they had a, a love marriage, which is pretty, pretty radical for their time. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and then they moved to London, which... Uh, in their time, it was easier to leave the country than to, like, break the joint family vibe. <laughs> so they moved to England. Um, my sister was 
uh, a year old, and then I was born in London. But as was the weird tradition in the diaspora at the time, I was sent back to India when I was about 10 months, which I think about it now, and it's like, that's pretty unbelievable. Um, And um, so I was raised with my uh, extended family, you know, passed around the relatives, the grandparents, etc., I moved back to England, and then we moved to the States, just shy of my fifth birthday, to uh, landed into what's now Bushwick, New York, so original hipster, (laughs) not the Bushwick of today, Uh, lived in Queens uh, for a bit, then suburban Long Island, and in my youth, when I flew the nest, I lived a lot, I spent a lot of time in Brooklyn, and now I live in Jackson Heights. My dad went to visit Toronto to see his friend in Toronto to think about moving to Toronto. And then he took a side trip to New York and he's like, oh no, no, not Toronto, New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can imagine at the times uh, Toronto wasn't as booming as New York because this city's kind of, you know, followed in New York steps, but not quite yet emulated it. Mm, I don't know. Toronto has been a very, very fundamental, important place in my development. Awesome. Uh, so it's a very important place in the diaspora, and we can talk about that. I, I have to give credit to Toronto as being very important. Uh, do you have any any memories of, you know, growing up with your extended family, or were you still too young at the time? I don't have any memory of that period of in, uh, when I was in India. I did, however, we went, my sister and I, she's three years older. When I was seven, I went for a summer. We did not go back and forth a lot. Uh, I think that was mostly economic. Uh, my parents sent us once when I we, I was seven and my sister was ten, and then I petitioned <laughs> to to go back to India. So I went. I started doing solo trips. Uh, so from the age of fifteen till like well into my thirties, I would go every th- two to three years, self-funded, you know, and alone, not with my parents. One time I was there with my family itself was for a cousin the one male heir's wedding of course and that too was like many years ago um so i developed strong bonds with my my cousins there and we don't have much extended family here um so there's a lot of cousin culture in the diaspora and especially in toronto and stuff and there's a lot of like one person comes and then the siblings of the parents come and so so i didn't really have that uh, and I don't have it now <laughs> much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do have a relationship with my cousins in India. My cousins, elder cousins did come here, uh, not elder, but cousins did move here for a short time. Um, and they were younger to me and I didn't really know them that well. And then we got close and that's actually, I started DJing with them. And then they ended up moving back to India and eventually to Australia and not being in the music scene at all. But um, I really, I think I craved that kind of connection so I have it more than, definitely more than in any way, but it's been it's been a it's been it's been a challenge, you know. You know, when you're growing up in New York, just the mm-hmm. absence of cousins around, were, was your family able to to find that familial connection through other community members that were around? Yeah. Um, so my mom was a nurse, and she studied nursing in Delhi, um, and so our our sort of family. Our community was built on um, her nursing students. I think she was a student nurse. So she, you know, there was a time in the 70s when we lived in Flushing where there was a, a density of, of 
of Daisy's Punjabi's from Delhi actually uh and so we kind of she kind of literally ran into someone on the street and then they sort of became the basis of our extended community and so I grew up with those people and um they all had similar patterns in that they started in Flushing uh and then moved to the suburbs so Flushing Queens is a uh I mean most people in diaspora know Jackson Heights more which in the 70s and 80s was more of a shopping place, but Flushing was often a first landing site for people. And um, and then they, you know, got suburban homes and moved out, so to Long Island. Uh, um, so those were the sort of the people that were close to me. My I did have a, an older male cousin who eventually moved here that we were a little disenfranchised with, and then his daughter... Um, who's 14 years my junior, I, I got to know her when she was, I guess, just a, a few years out of high school. She came to an MIA show I opened for, <laughs> and we reconnected there, and then we became very close, uh, partly because we also have shared history. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did definitely grow up in a sort of a community. My parents only socialized mostly with those people, um, it was pretty homogenous in its way, not just Delhi, West Delhi. Um, and those families were about 10 years younger than my parents. So at times their kids seemed growing up, you know, if you're like three years apart from somebody, you just feel like you're a different generation. So, um, you know, I, we didn't, we didn't live near them, but they were our social like connection. How uh, how big uh, was the community then compared to now? Because like now you always hear about Flushing Queens, you hear about uh, these hot spots for the diaspora in mm -hmm. in New York. So what was it like then to now? And uh, did it, did you ever feel like you were part of like the like when you go to the school when you went to school, right? Mm -hmm. Did you feel mm -hmm. did you feel the sense of the Indian community there as well, or was it just when you are going to these functions or so on and so on? Right. So, I mean, if I think about the community now, I just think like on steroids, just like more. There's just so much of it, so so much of it, and part of that is like we're now in our second, third generations. You know, people have been. There are people now who've been born here who probably have grandkids, you know, we're starting yeah. to. So then we've just got that sense of time, which I saw with our counterparts in London and just sort of that ge geographical timeline, uh, I mean, the chronological timeline. There's also like immigration at play where first wave, the like the huge rush of people that came post 65, then brought siblings over. So my parents didn't really do that, but our other family friends, like, they brought a lot of their siblings over. So they're people that are kind of, like, in the middle. And I think those have really deep class implications. Um, so I'm part of a Punjabi community, but not a Punjab from Punjab community. So we weren't personally... And there were some people who came from Delhi post-84. So uh, in terms of uh, my where I grew up, when I, we lived in Flushing till fourth grade, that was really diverse, a lot of Indian people, but all kinds of people. And then we moved to Long Island and we moved to a suburb, but the school district was mostly African-American. So there were actually no Indians in my school, very few. I mean, um, like three. So at school, my community was, you know, 
it was mixed, but it was mostly Caribbean American kids, black American kids, a handful of Jewish liberal kids whose parents didn't leave when there was white flight in the suburb, and some odds and, you know, a few East Asians. So that, I didn't really have that. When I went to college, though, I went to Queens College, and there was a huge Indian population there. So that is definitely when I got, you know, more uh, connected to Indian, Indian peers my age. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the community, um, you know, South Asians at large, they're just more of. In New York, the fast, one of the fastest growing populations are Bangladeshis. And my neighborhood is really uh, very Bangladeshi and Himalayan. Which, you know, is it, everything gets reduced down to Desi, but that sort of dilutes, you know, the differentiation within the community. Um, and, you know, Jackson, there are these diaspora points, South Hall, Jackson Heights, etc., that even Toronto um, or Artesia and L.A. that become sort of synonymous for community. And despite what changes in those, those worlds and those communities, whether through gentrification or... Uh, you know, economic upward mobility for some folks, you know, but they still become those those markers. Like South Hall in London is different. It's not what it was. It's being replaced by newer immigrants, Somalians, for instance. So, and, you know, like even in, in New York, like Edison is big, which is a suburb. Hicksville, which is a suburb. So, um, you know, people are expanding and spreading. Growing up, uh, what was your exposure to music? Like, was there a lot of music in the household? Um, my exposure to music was, um, there were kind of two, two lanes. Uh, my parents did like to listen to, like, the news all the time in the car. <laughs> my sister was um, a little bit older, and so she was into Top 40 radio. And then you always hear what the kids at school are listening to. So the kids were lis- at school were listening to hip-hop. Well, it wasn't even... Hip-hop hadn't even started. This is the 80s, so, like, radio was extremely racially segmented. So there was, like, a station in New York called Hot 97. Uh, no, not Hot 97. Kiss FM. And that was the black station. And they played, you know, Friday Night DJ Red Alert. And that was sort of the beginnings of hip-hop. So that's what we kind of heard at school. Um, and then our exposure to music at home was um, through movies, through Bollywood movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the car sometimes eight track player in the car. So older Bollywood, um, and then top 40 radio. And then, you know, the black, whatever, you know, I'll say, I'll call it the black station. That, that was sort of my exposure. I didn't really grow up listening to Punjabi music that much, except when I did get introduced to it through my mom, actually, it really did change my life. You know, I was like, yo, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) So, and then, you know, and then that sort of like really kicked it open for me. Yeah, what were uh, some of those like first artists that like did it for you? Like, you know, like I, I guess it could be like you're searching for something. Once you hear it, you're like, holy crap, right? And then it's mm-hmm. then then you go into that deep dive of yo, there's this genre, I like it. Now I got to know everything about it. So who were sure. some of the first artists you heard, and who are some of the first artists that you found once you started digging? Right. Well, colonialism runs deep, so <laughs> I'll just pre. Uh, you know, set that up. When I was 12, we moved from, we would say, you know, the city to the suburbs. And it was a pretty isolating experience. So I kind of fell in love with the public library. And um, we could take out music. And I really approached younger 
music through words more than music. So I really got into John Lennon because he had just died and his shit was everywhere. And uh, and he and I, I realized that now like he was political in his own way. And I think that was a connection that really drew me. So I really, really, really got into the Beatles. Um, and then there was, in addition to the Black Station, um, more so when I was in high school, um, there was this call, uh, station called WLIR, which is sort of alternative music, which is where there was all this British uh, new wave, we would call it maybe like post-punk new wave stuff that, you know, felt rich in its, in its expression. Um, this was when the DX7 synthesizer came to play and that music was not on mainstream radio. So that alone felt like it was something different. Um, but I really, really fell for Prince hard. And then in terms of rap, I really got into Run DMC because the message was political. Um, looking back, you know, the context, <laughs> I realized how kind of manufactured they were in their own way. Um, but you know, their first album, you know, hard times and, um, you know, that's the way it is. All those songs, uh, they, they spoke of something to me. And, uh, and, you know, back then we'd have to listen to the song and write the words down. So you, or you'd get a magazine, uh, word up magazine. I mean, it's in a biggie small song, but that shit was real. There was word up magazine, you could get it in the library. You could read it and read up, you know, read up on things. Um, and they would always print like Beatles lyrics. And I, I, I just felt like they created a world and it was an interesting world, and they're basically working class guys from a town that you know transcended that, but really sort of kept talking about it in their songs. Um, and then you know I was really taken by hip hop in many ways, and then uh, I guess uh, I mean I like singer songwriters too. Um, I'm just trying to think, but uh, I mean I definitely fell for hip hop hard, you know. And New York yep. hip hop, and you know this is the, the era of Tupac and Biggie, and even before that, like KRS-One, um, and uh, you know even Curtis Blow, Grandmaster Flash, all of that stuff. That was like, that was uh, the message was really important. I remember my sister recorded a tape. I accidentally recorded over the message. She was so mad at me. <laughs> I got in trouble. Um, yeah, so that's the stuff. And that also interspersed with like Bollywood music, which was constantly in the background in its own way. And my, my, I just also like in a desire to understand Hindi better. So my parents spoke Punjabi to us. We spoke English, but you know, but we also, they also spoke Hindi sometimes. So I, I was only comfortable in Hindi. So the few times I'd gone to India, I'd have to speak mostly in Hindi. So I would listen to the words of Bollywood songs to try to understand what the words meant and get more fluent in it. And who are some of the first or the earliest uh, Bhangra artists that you fell in love with? Mulkeet Singh. Yeah. <laughs> Hands down. Mulkeet Singh. Like Mulkeet Singh up front. That album is just everything for me. So I entered Bhangra at, you know, Golden Star, Mulkeet Singh. Um, and then uh, my mom went to England. Our family friend cousin was got engaged. Tutak, tutak, tutian was everywhere. <laughs> she brought a Classic. cassette back. I mean, she kind of knew, you know, my mom kind of understood my, my music, understood my desire. She didn't always get it, but she, she fed it any way she could. She'd always, you know, when I was really young, she'd subscribe, she subscribed to a book, a month club type thing. And she knew I was thirsty for knowledge. And, um, and then she brought me this cassette back of Mulkeet Singh. 
And uh, it, it kind of blew my mind. Like, we had one Punjabi folk record. And I knew I was drawn to, like, there was something about Punjabi that felt familiar, but not, I didn't know enough about it, you know, like, linguistically. And, you know, we, we're, we're Hindu Punjabi. We went to Gurdwara, and we were around, uh, you know, Kirtan music as well. But the politics of 84, we stopped going. Um, and I did actually take two tabla lessons from the Gudwar, and then we moved, and then that was over. So <laughs> I was like, Once, do this. When you get that right, come back. And then we moved, and then they were like, oh, no, we're going to take you to the Gudwara to get you lessons. So that, that could have been a tabla player, I'm telling you. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean... That that Mulkeet Singh was was sort of the gateway drug, and that album up front. And then I think a while later, by this time, my cousins who were six and four years younger than me were in the states. I was sort of just out of high school, and we started to develop a relationship. And part of that was around music. So they were in high school, so they were around a lot of Indian kids, a, a lot of Fabi Indian kids too. And so they would hear. They, their sources in school were, you know, they were getting heads up on things. And the real connection was when I heard Bali Sagu because he used so much of Mokit's music. And then he took Mokit and then he did all this other stuff with it, which was dance hall based. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> wow. And that was it. And then Apache Indian, you know. And mm. when we heard Apache Indian, we were like, yo, this is good. <laughs> and I know my 21st birthday party. I'm pretty sure I've told the story. We literally dance in my parents' living room to the Don Raja album, which has six songs on it. It has its three songs and a remix of those three songs. And I, <laughs> I really think we literally danced to that CD all night. Um, so I think that, I think there was a hunger for some connection to quality music that, you know, you had a personal connection with. I mean, Apache Indian, what he was talking about was fun. And it was like, it was, it was, um, it sounded good. It sounded, you know, and he, he talked about things that, you know, it was, it wasn't super realistic necessarily, but it, it painted a picture as well. Yeah, I got a similar story, actually. My cousin had the, uh, the cassette of the Chuck mm -hmm. This single. Yeah. Okay. And we just ran through that for like a yeah. good year. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I actually have a good Mokit story. Song. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, like, Mokit's, like, one of my personal favorites. Like, my parents, like, hold Mokit up as, like, the GOAT, right? And uh, and uh, so one time, uh, one of our, uh, when we were still living in Norway, I was, I was a young child, but uh, one of our family friends, they had gotten Mokit to come to Norway for a lordy party. Wow. Right? And, uh, and uh, well, you know, I know, I don't, I don't even want to know how much it cost back then. You know what? He'll go. If you, yeah, if, no, if you take he's... care of him, he'll be there. <laughs> okay, so listen to this, right? So he comes there, and then um, we had some spare bedrooms in our house, so they had asked if if we could get Mokit to stay with us for the night. And my parents obviously said, yeah. And then the next day, like, my mom drove around Mokit showing him the area and showing him the little tourist joints. And she could not, like, till this day, she says, this is the most nicest human being. And the way, <laughs> the, the class that he carried yeah, himself with and this, that, like... So it's like, you know, for me, just hearing that, hearing those stories growing up and like, I have a picture with them, but I, I don't necessarily remember it, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, but Mokit will always be uh, held to legend status for me. Yeah. And you know, I've gotten to meet, meet him and work with him. So like, I'm jealous to I'm me, just... <laughs> like, I mean, I still can't believe it, you know, 
And it's true. I mean, he's he's professional. He's on. He keeps his he has his game face on all the time, you know. And and uh, I respect that, you know. So um, yeah, I mean that to me that's um, yeah. He he's he's the gold star. Yeah, and there's there's <laughs> there's something sound. about a Punjabi singer who can sound as good live as he does on record, right? And yeah. he's uh, one of the on, best at it. He he's an old school guy. He doesn't like the newfangled stuff. Um, yeah. He doesn't really work with younger producers. He's done a little bit, and I can just tell he's doing it because he feels like he's he's got to do it a little bit. But that's my theory, you know. Um, yeah. We did a live taping with him at Breakthrough Radio, and. It's it's on the web. You can check it out, and it's just Guru Nal Ishk, and it's it's amazing. And his band was so happy because I think they're just they're probably so tired of doing weddings. They were like, "Yeah, we're in a studio," yeah. you know. And it was just, and it was a one one. It was one take. No, of course. It was just one take. They just did it, and he brought his thumbi and he did it. You know, he he put on a new shirt and he just rocked it, and it was amazing. That's amazing. When did you first you know experiment on the turntables? The path to the turntables to the to playing the music was a little uh, it wasn't a straight path uh, at Queens College. By the way, I hate the word promoter, so I'm just gonna put that out there. <laughs> okay. That's just like that's like a used car salesman. Uh, I'm yeah, that's a kind of curator, thing. presenter, exactly. Uh, at Queens College, I got very involved in the India Club. There was no South Asian club, and I think through that, I definitely got my hands into like organizing events and i was not djing that i mean during college is when me and my cousin started a dj crew and i'll explain to you what that meant and all its gender implications so we st my cousins went to john bound high school which was r attached to my college so they were a few years younger and they did a punjabi cultural program uh some bhangra dance and then they were asked to do it at in long island at another like community space and so the DJ that played their music, um, we kind of felt he sabotaged it a little bit, didn't play it up enough. And then it was kind of like a galvanizing moment, like, who is this guy? We can do this. And that's kind of like uh, some cousin power took over. But at that time, when I was in college, we booked different DJs, like Jay Dobby now, who by then went to by Little Jay. And um, I always tried to do events at school that were the most accessible. So I did parties five to 10 um, so that women could go. So there was still a lot of stigma about, you know, ours was a commuter school. It wasn't an overnight school. I mean, now it is. So a lot of women had other duties. Um, they were in extended families. They had to do household labor. Uh, they couldn't necessarily stay out late. Um, so I was like, you know, I had to tell your mom you're at the library party. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, after I left, that tradition did not carry on. But, you know, so we booked other DJs. And, and this was a time when we are just starting to see a critical mass of, of Desis where there are parties even happening. And the main party place was this Indo-Caribbean club called Soka Paradise. And then there would be college parties. And then eventually it spilled onto people getting club spaces in the city. In fact, I was one of the first ones, and we did it as a fundraiser for a civil rights organization. And then other guys got in and started doing like just regular parties there. But, um, but that, that's where we started. So me and my cousins were like, yo, let's try to rub our nickels together and get a crew together. So when we started, I was not the DJ. 
they were the DJs and it was very gendered. I was sort of, you know, the one with the car, the one with the credit card, but we combined our musical knowledge. Like I, I was always into music. Um, I was the kid with the Walkman. I bought Billboard magazine when I was 12. <laughs> I used to like predict what would be number one. Um, I was, it, it, it was a world that I was able to immerse myself in, uh, in, in a weird introverted-ish way. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's how it started. And then due to circumstance, they went back to India. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I either like give this up or I keep going. And I felt like I don't want to give this up, you know? So, uh, one cousin left first, and then the second one left. So the, 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 the younger cousin who left first, he was basically the DJ. He had a more natural ability than the older cousin, uh, Monu. Um, he started doing the, the mechanics of it. Uh, but by then, we, you know, we'd slowly gotten ourselves into gear and mixers and stuff. And then, then I started. And then I, I connected. When he left, I, I was like, I need somebody to do this with. And then I connected with... This kid, uh, Joy uh, Bhattacharya, Bengali, Bengali, second-gen Bengali kid, who was a hip-hop DJ, and he had actual turntable skills. So he kind of, like, brought me up to speed. I mean, I knew. I just think part of the hesitation was I didn't have to and just, like, a little nervousness around it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's when I actually kind of learned on the job. When when you launched uh, Basement Bhangra in mm-hmm. 1997, mm-hmm. what was the club scene like in New York at the time? So when I launched Basement, at that time, it was kind of what I had, uh, as, what I mentioned was, at this point, there there was a critical mass of young Desis looking for spaces to have parties. And what those spaces ended up being were um, places you could rent out. I mean, ev- this happens... This is a, a self-renewing population of younger groups of people of whatever categorization, whether it's young queer folks or young, whatever community is having a critical mass of that people want like their own space. So what they end up doing in the city is taking over spaces that are, you know, for rent or f- available when things are down, like a Sunday of a three-day weekend or something. I mean, Daisy's like to drink, so that's good. But then they would be, I look back now, it's like you'd have to promise the bar would make so much money to even get in. So there were sort of these kinds of events that were ad hoc. There was nothing consistent. They were usually like, you know, dressed to impress kind of situations. They've always felt expensive to me. Um, and, uh, that, that was what it was. So it was inconsistent, Friday, Saturday night, a lot of competition, a lot of this, that, uh, you know, g- got to, like, get the people fighting over this one venue, Metronome, who could get Metronome. And so uh, by this point, I had already started DJing fundraisers and community, uh, other kinds of things. Um, and so through that work... Um, I got asked to open for a for Toronto band, Punjabi by Nature, uh, at okay, SOBs. Dope. And um, SOBs had had mild experience with Bhangra in that this band, Excellency, if you guys know. Do you know Excellency? Oh, 
look it up. X L N C. Um, oh, now I'm going to play that song. I'm going to bring Excellency back. Excellency was this band. Um, they're on Multitone Records, which was the first Bhangra label to get like acquired by BMG. It was a big deal. And um, they got booked for Summer Stage, which is this free outdoor concert series in Central Park, which I have a long history with. And um, they played Summer Stage and then uh, they got a second gig because, like, a lot of times, you know, bands would come in and then they do, like, a like a p- piggyback gig at this venue called SOBs, which is where Bass and Bugger started. And they remembered that, oh, man, we had this band and we didn't expect anybody and all these people showed up and they drank like fish, you know? And so um, when Punjabi by Nature came to town, they came for some cultural thing that this ethnic folk art center, which does, like, world music type stuff, was doing, they wanted to do a program, they asked me to recommend a band, I, that's the only band I could think of, I thought a Jazzy B was way too expensive, even back then, <laughs> and so these guys were hungry, they were sort of in that world music zone, um, and they came down, and then we got them, they got a second gig at SOBs, and um, the, the way the venue operated is, they, they like to work in different communities, and they just tell the community, like, you know, here, you bring people, and the people, you the more people you bring, the more stake you have in this party. So that night was Punjabi MC, 32 tribes. The drummer was Kirsch Kale. It's funny now. Uh, if you know, he's an electronic music artist uh, doing a lot of work in India. He, he was all over the Gully Boy soundtrack. Um, so Kirsch was the drummer. And that was a Tuesday night in February. It was cold as brick. And it did well. And that's when the club said, do you want to think of something you want to try something regularly, like a like a monthly, and um, that's that's how Basement Bungo started. And by luck, by sheer luck, the next one, the one we did, we called it Basement Bungo. Bali Sagu happened to have just gotten a record deal by Sony. They were dying to like get him opportunities to get him in front of a crowd, so he DJed the first night, and that just like. It, got, it was like the best promotion ever. <laughs> that just sounds crazy. They're like, here, yeah, Bally will play for you. We just need him to like, you know, we need him to, to do some New York shows. And yeah, the venue was already, was reputable and known. So that helped, you know. Well, once you once you kind of have your foot in the door and you are now getting pretty much like a residency at this place, um, do you feel like, it became easier to put on these shows or was it still kind of a learning curve kind of because like people know anything can happen in these nights. Oh, it's never easier. It's just a new set of problems, you know? So one of the impetuses or one of the concepts, I mean, based on Pongra was a very, it wasn't just, I didn't, I didn't see it as just a Desi party and I still don't. I mean, part of the shuffle with these promoters Sometimes me and Joy would throw the party. Sometimes we'd get booked to do the party. One of the problems I had was the the musical directives and the sort of music policing, which was uh, we don't want thugs. We don't want hoodies, hood, hoodlums at the party. We don't want too much Punjabi music at the party. We don't want too much black music at the party. And that was at a time when the radio stations were still segmented. Eminem hadn't happened. Hip-hop was not ubiquitous. It was the black station played it, and then it didn't. So the the concept behind Basement was 
first of all, I'm going to do it on a Thursday night. So I don't have to like fight over who got this club on this Friday or Saturday. I'm just going to do it on the first Thursday. It's an appointment. Second, it's going to be cheap. Or it's going to be a, have a cheap avenue, like cheap before X. There's not going to be any gender, like ladies free, any of that crap. Two, there's not going to be any dress code. Fuck it. You come to dance. Pardon my French. And I think, and I'm going to play Bhangra like you never heard before. And I'm going to play hip hop because those are the things you tell me not to play. So that's what I'm going to do. I think that was the concept. <laughs> it still is. Um, so the party, it took a while for it to get to that like level where the line was down the block. So the first couple of nights, you know, the first night was Bali Sigu. It was awesome. The second, I, I remember like the end of the first year, I remember it being like kind of not so busy and feeling a little worried. And then by the next summer, um, uh, it was just through the roof. It was through the roof. And then it was just bananas. And it just kept going. What, what um, do you... What do you think, uh, like, created that change into more people coming through? Was it just, you know, just making it more authentic experience? Like, fuck the rules. Like, this is a dance party, you know? Like, there shouldn't be many rules in a dance party to begin with. Other than, you know, just treat people good and have a good time. But what what do you think made it successful? I think it got successful um, because I think word got out. So I I think, like... I think what made it successful was the music, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it was refreshing. It was different. I, I physically sourced the music. I went to England and got that shit, you know? And then when we didn't book many artists, but when we booked them, we booked people I really liked, you know? And that I thought were good. And nobody was doing that. We didn't, that wasn't even a concept here, you know? Like, Mulkeet Singh had told me that he had come here many years ago and played in Lincoln Center. And so there would be these kinds of things that you mentioned in Norway, which happens all the time, where within the community, outside of the urban center, there might be these private type of shows that are funded, not for money, but just whatever. And then these artists may come. And I think this is more with the Punjab direct uh, community. What I was doing is working in a mainstream music venue trying to put on a club-type show with a live artist, which had not really been done. So, I mean, that's how we got Punjabi MC. I just loved the tape. And I called the number or something. Like, it was as easy as that. And then got made a connection with the guy that was working with him there, Jatinder here. And he is ultimately my connection. He was very connected to the Desi music scene uh, in, in the UK. Um, I think basement was refreshing. It was anyone could go. There was no dress code. It felt like a welcoming space. It started off with my friends who were activists and early academics and queer folks and urban people. And then what really took it over was when word got out. When real when Punjabi people who listened to Pangra from Punjab were like, oh my God, we're not just going to get like a drop. We're not going to get, because at that time, they see parties would do like little bunger set, little Bollywood set, little house set, little hip hop set. I was like, no, this is, it's on, you know, we're going <laughs> hard. We're not doing a little this, little that. We're doing a lot of like foreplay, which was like every time they'd be like, please. And I, I'm really a believer in like building it up, you know? And then, and then I, and then it was just like a really good time for me in hip hop. It was a very 95 to 99, uh, 100 BPM hip hop moment. 
you know, and that stuff's very danceable. It's like, you know, Swiss Beats, Neptunes, um, these kind of producers that I really think make really good dance joints, a classic, Jermaine Dupri, whatever. Um, so I just think it was just that combination. It was a critical mass of people. It was a welcoming space. It was good music. It, it was like, you know, accessible. Like, you want to make your party corny? Make it expensive to get into. You're going to get those, those people. You're going to get those, those jerks in the party. I don't <laughs> want those people in my party. I want people who can dance. <laughs> I want people who like, I, and, and I would identify people who are really good dancers. And I'd be like, here, call this number and I will comp you. You just come. I just need you on this dance floor. That's dope. Yeah, so it, it sounds like there was just a large group of South Asian people in the city looking for something to do, and mm -hmm. you provided them with a place. Like, there, there's this the whole thing about representation, and, like, mm -hmm. you were able to provide them with something that authentically represented their experiences. Sure. And Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think there's a couple of other things that I realized. We were very close to NYU, and there was a lot of Punjabi kids there. But I think past Punjabi kids, I think that this place became larger than the music itself. It became a safe space. It became a space. Um, and so you didn't really need to, like, everyone, especially in the diaspora here in New York, it's like we're not as concentrated in terms of our backgrounds, right? So, like, everybody is in Punjabi and everybody doesn't know the words. And it didn't kind of matter. It was like, this was a, I mean, the, my, my joke was basement bungalow where you bring your coworkers, you know? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I do think there's a cultural connection. And then a lot of everything around the party was like done with care. The visuals always had to have live visuals in the mix. Every flyer, super thought out, well thought out. Like, you know, everything about the experience was important to me it was a political statement to do this mm -hmm. type of party. Like mm -hmm. you kept it, no dress code, you kept it at an affordable rate. So it was you know, very class conscious. And even like you talked about the flyers there, one of the flyers, um, when I was doing some research for the show, I know there was one you did during the George Bush era. Where it was oh like, yeah. DJ Rick versus George Bush. I'm like, what? this is dope. <laughs> Bunga versus Bush. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, was, that was definitely hands down the best flyer that was ever made. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was that was a, uh, a collaboration with an artist, Chirag Bhakta. I think I took a lot of care around it because I came from an activist background, you know, and I wanted to create a space that was open for for different kinds of people. And I didn't like the heteronormative club scene, you know, and I didn't think, you know, yeah, I mean, that was that was kind of my motive. And my motive was to play good music. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that Bali Sagu uh, DJ set. Because like, Bali Sagu, another one of those, like, that era of, like, UK Pangra music is, like, I, like the same way we hold, like, 90s hip-hop as the golden era. Oh, to me, I consider yeah. that, like, the golden era of, like, Pangra. Obviously, the predecessors are dope as well, but... That's the shit I grew up with, so like I I hold that at a at a high. Uh, so who are well going all the way back from starting with Bali Sagu? Obviously, you mentioned uh, yeah, Punjabi MC. Who are some of the other people who have come through, and some of the acts who weren't even mm -hmm. big acts when they when they graced that stage? So Tiger Style, you know, we brought Tiger Style over. Shout out Tiger um, Style. There's this producer who actually toured with Bali a little bit, Ravi Bal. 
Um, okay. He has a, a, the Batcave in Birmingham. He's produced a lot of records, and he worked with Bally a lot. Um, he brought over some artists. We had B21. Um, we, had, we had Zeus, who came with B21, who was was like... He was just getting started. Like, he had done, like, <laughs> Wandia de Gudol, but he didn't. He hadn't done Under the... I don't think he had done Under the Influence by then. He might not have done it by then, because then he would have... That would have been a bigger deal. Um, yeah, so we had B21. Uh, you know, I keep... Forget, I forget all the... Oh, we had... We had Stereo Nation. Um, we've had Apache Indian a bunch of times, Punjabi MC a bunch of times. Oh, we didn't do a ton of acts, only when we did big, big shows. So um, then Bikram Singh basically came out of Basin Bhangra, um, and he you know, made a connection with Tiger Style. Uh, so he performed there a lot over the years. Um, towards the end, Gunjan, too, who was you know worked with Bikram and... Um, Tiger Style, this artist, and I'm thinking of all the more recent people because they're fresh in my mind. So you know, Raghav we've had, and then Prophecy, DJ Sanj, I think of who else. We had Monkey. Um, we had RDB <laughs> like a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it was mostly the party, and then, you know, special nights. Uh, I, I think the person we've had the most was probably Punjabi MC and Apache Indian. Or I guess, what were some of the circumstances behind the the end of Basement Bhangra? Or why did you feel that it needed to end? Every month I was like, oh, this is this is gonna this is gonna end this is gonna end, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, for twenty years, my God, what torture I put myself through! <laughs> Jesus, terrible. So at year fifteen, I think there was a change in vibe in the space and I think part of it was someone in the crew was going through a dark time and I think it, it that energy was a little infectious um and I, I don't know I think like I was getting to a point where I was like maybe thinking what else and um I don't know why this I think somebody was talking in my ear a little bit dealing with a venue is always up and down you know they only love you when you're like super at the peak you've ever been. And if you drop anywhere a little bit, they just think you're like over. They, there's no sympathy. So I think, you know, it was a time when, um, you know, and I'm also aging with the party, right? <laughs> so I'm like trying to stay connected and trying to keep it, keep it going. Um, and I decided to move venues because I felt like I kept hearing people like, yo, class it up. SOBs is a dump. There was a lot of bottle service happening, and I was thinking, oh, maybe we can do different things if we have a different kind of venue. So I moved it to, you know, on paper, a much better venue. Good reputation as a music venue, uh, from a production point of view, way better. And so I moved it to that place, and the truth was is that it just didn't have the vibe. I don't know how, but we kept that going for five years. And then I, I just decided it was time to be done with the party and I wanted a round number and I had it in my mind to want to do the final party the final event at summer stage so I had that two years in the making and I had a relationship with summer stage I'd played there several times for over the years and I pitched it and you know it's a good idea 20 years final concert you know Apache Indian Punjabi MC it's like done and the you know the person who was 
the artistic director at Summer Stage. She got a she used to work at SOB, so we knew each other and we worked on the MIA show at Summer. We had a history that was helpful. And it was a good show, it was a good pitch. So I think once I moved back, I knew that I moved back eight months before the end that I was just this was time to go out with a bang. And all that energy came back, you know? Like basement came the energy of basement came back. People were like SOBs, SOBs, and there was something about that space. And I realize now with the perspective of having done it that it was a more open and friendly space for folks of color. There was something about the room that felt easy. It was ground floor. The other places kind of had a dark mystique vibe. It just didn't have the same energy. So from my point of view, it felt good production wise. They put sandbags on the DJ table and SOBs is like, they won't even buy a cordless microphone, even though they do, you know, but I think (laughs) that kind of, you know, ratty tatty vibe was kind of what made, made the party work. And the last night we did Mickey sing and it was, I mean, if we had double the space, we would have filled it, you know? And then Summer Stage was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. So and that was 2017. So in terms of why end it ended, it, I felt like the time had come, you know? I, through the years, had different co-DJs and stuff. And I didn't really have strong resident DJs that were as committed. You know, at that time, I had two other DJs that were residents, and they were there, but they were also doing their own thing, so... I just felt like it was time to move on, you know, and it's okay for things to end. Like let people like, you know, nobody, as the owner of SOB is like Raker. Everybody loves a funeral. Like, you know, when things end, it's a pause. It's a way to reflect on it. You know, I, I read somewhere it was the longing standing, uh, like dance party mm-hmm. in, in New York. Uh, I would say it was one of the longest uh, cons- like longest running parties, regular parties in New York nightlife across the board. Yeah, twenty years. Yeah, that's a career Definitely, right there. Most likely the longest continuous party. So there have been other parties that have been longer, like Shelter and Body and Soul, but they have gaps. Like we've never stopped First Thursdays. Like that's First dope. Thursday every month, except I think we stopped it once for a hurricane or something. But. And- Along those 20 years, I, I can only imagine how many, like, uh, rip-off parties there were who were trying to emulate <laughs> what uh, Basement Pungra were doing. No, haters are going to hate. Oh, yeah. Balcony Pungra. Like, <laughs> just making up their own spin-offs. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was Upstairs this... Pungra. There was this, like, um, around the block, there used to be this happy hour professionals business card, and the guy, ugh. He would even lie about it and say that it was connected and like people would do happy hour there and then uh, come to basement, you know, and uh, yeah, there were there were a lot of things people like down the block, try to do something same night down the block. Like, come yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, my whole point was like, leave me alone. It's Thursday. <laughs> do the party on Friday. Like, why? There's enough for everybody. Like, why are you want it? Why do you want it? Why do you want to... Are we allowed to curse? Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Why are, we, why are you trying to fuck with my shit? I don't care about your shit. I really don't care. I'm not going to even show up at your party because I don't want to validate it. I, I see I see that a lot here with, uh, with Indian promoters as well, where it's like you that try to it. have a rival night, but I never understood that mentality. There are so many nights for you to do whatever you want, and, 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 and there's a part of, like... Thing? 
why don't you want to be original? I don't understand that. I the okay. There's two things that I never want to do is look like I'm doing what someone else did. I don't ever want to look like I'm doing something that someone else did. That is like artistic. Like that just kills my soul. Like I don't want. If you've done it, I don't want to do it. It's got to be different. I feel like the people that are more prone to jump on somebody's coattails, they're not the ones that are really in it for the love of it or for the passion of it. They think there's a pie. They think there's money. The money grab. Yeah. And they don't understand the cost of doing basement. It's not a money grab because if I'm doing it all these ways, if I'm spending money in production and things like that, if I'm doing it at a place where I'm not, where up until the end you could get in for five bucks before eight o'clock, where, what money grab is there, (laughs) you know, um, you know, and there's no like volunteer staff. I love it when I do other gigs. Sometimes it's like, there's like teams of people and most of them are not getting paid. Which I don't understand. It's like, I mean, both sides. Why are you doing it for free? They're just using an army of people that just, like, do it. To each their own. But, yeah, I I don't get it. I don't really get it. Um, It's happening now, even with this live stream nonsense. Or people, like, trying to do these concerts. And then, like, someone's doing it. And someone's like, oh, well, they're doing it the same day. I'm like, why? why? And I've run into that problem doing queer parties. Like, I started a girl, you know, a women's party. And then I like purposely did it, not the weekend of Pride where the usual Daisy party was. And then that year they decide to do it that weekend that I'm doing it. I'm like, I intentionally did it away from you. And why would you do it? You've never not done it on Pride weekend. I'm like Pride month. I'm like, why? 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 (laughs) Just why? I don't get it. I just don't understand. There's enough for everybody. And if you have faith in yourself, you know, you'll make it happen. Yeah, now with everything going on with COVID and the pandemic, how has that changed your ability to to DJ? Or just how are you kind of keeping active within your art? So that, that's interesting because um, it's definitely been like a direct hit for like, you know, private. I, I don't do a ton of private wedding stuff, but I do a few and they usually are really uh, fulfilling. <laughs> Um, so I've lost those and I had some festivals booked and, uh, so I lost that work. That work is just gone. Um, but I started doing a a weekly Sunday party and part of it was I had gotten hired to do a party for a TV show. And then I had to learn how to live stream. I had to learn what a ring light is. Um, I see it in the back there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I use I have this other like setup in in the room where there's like a bookcase and it's all like fancy, but I prefer this is my desk, so I'm like, eh, I don't need to sh- I don't need to fake it for you guys. Um, but I do have some artifact here, which is I have a, which most people don't even know there was this thing, as for a short-lived time there was this thing called MTV Dixie. Okay. And um. And this was a, and they taped at Basement a lot. I gave them a lot of content. And uh, we'd have, this was like the disclaimer before you walked in, that by going, you're authorizing your like, likeness for MTV DC. It was short-lived. It was well-intentioned, but um, uh, they never got really good distribution. They were only on some like obscure satellite dish network at the time. So, it, but it was, it was official. It was legit like MTV DC. Um, and I did one episode where me and Juggy D counted down some songs, some random songs. Um, anyhow, um, 
So basically, one was like the technical challenge of like how to make it sound good, how to DJ, and I was definitely pushed by my friend Purna, um, who was in the show. Who's in the show? Never have I ever. Purna Jagannathan, and she like she's like, look, I have this, the show's coming out. I want to do a party. Do it with me. Let's do this party together. And she marshaled up all her friends, and her friends are fancier than my friends. She marshaled up the whole like. Anyone connected to the show, including Mindy Kaling, and you know some people I did know, and so we did this party uh, on Instagram Live. But the challenge, as you may know, with DJing on live stream is the, is that we're getting shut down everywhere. So it's been a challenge to do, to negotiate that. To so that means that the the general wisdom is mix faster. So that changes the performance. It's also like I'm not DJing to anybody. <laughs> I'm DJing to the comments. You know, and it's right, like, yeah, you don't get that immediate feedback of the energy from the room. In some ways you do, because if the comments are flying, then you're getting that vibe. But right. then you have to talk a lot to get them to, to respond to you. <laughs> so it's like a jibber jabber session, which is weird. So I'm doing it. So I decided that, you know, every Sunday, just to keep my, me sharp, I'm going to do an hour every Sunday. And it's on, um, uh, you know, doing it on IG, Twitch, Facebook. And uh, I just we just started Periscope which is a Twitter, uh, like live stream thing. So it's like challenging. Cause at some point, any one of these, uh, avenues will get shut down in the middle of your set. <laughs> so right, that's sort right. of my steady thing. And then I've had a couple of other gigs here and there. So it changes the nature of the performance, you know, uh, I'm DJing from, I, you know, Sunday sessions from Jackson Heights, which is, you know, very intentional. It's about the locating myself here. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I did a fundraiser for an org I'm on the board of, Chaya CDC, which serves the South Asian community in New York. And, you know, it's a direct relief fund, COVID relief fund, where just people are bleeding here. You know, there's a lot of first response, first uh, essential workers here, people who work in restaurants, and restaurants are closed here. And work cash jobs, or, you know, there's a lot of um, Nepali and Tibetan folks here that are nannies for rich people in the city and stuff um so uh you know one week was just to help money for that um and last week of course was for black lives matter causes and bail funds and stuff so and then one week i did do a tip jar situation which is hard because i'm not that's like kind of hard for me to do but all the djs are doing it and if we're not getting gigs and we're not charging people we have to do something um so yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing. And there, I've done a couple of private, like, kind of what I would do in the real world, like, events for other things, you know? It's not the same but at uh, all. What, what are your thoughts about, like, everybody and their mamas having an uh, Instagram DJ set nowadays? Like, do you take any offense to that? Or is it power to the people? Do whatever makes you happy kind of thing. Oh, power to the people. I try to pop on on everyone's set as much as possible. Like, yeah. Uh, DJ Shilpa does every Saturday night, nine o'clock Eastern. Like I'm always like trying to get in there, you know, and it's, it's, I, it's actually brought me a lot closer to my DJ comrades. I have to say That's partly cool. because in the beginning we were, I was we were calling each other saying, how do you do it? What are you doing? How do you do it? Why are you getting like, literally in the beginning, we just like, how do you not get shut down? And then we're sharing information and knowledge. Um, and, um, oh, I mean, I, I, I try to carve out a, 
a, a slot. I did the same the same formula. Let me do it about the same time. This is where I'm gonna be. I'm Sundays at one o'clock. This is my hour. Just leave me alone. Let me do my hour. You know. <laughs> and it and it, you know it's Purna's genius because it it fits a lot of time zones. So I think the thing that's changed also significantly is your audience is literally worldwide. You know, yeah. you're transcending uh, the physical space where you can DJ. So I like to ask during every session, who's the furthest away from me? And boy, someone last week, someone from Jordan and Yemen, wow. and Jordan and Fiji and Australia. And, you know, it's amazing. That is dope. Uh, this is a question that I always like to ask DJs. And sometimes I know the answer. But uh, what are your feelings about requests? Hate them. <laughs> always no if any dj says they like requests they're lying well like, yeah it, it's like somebody telling you how to do your job right it's i'm an artiste don't tell me i mean exactly. I, people i mean the thing about requests is funny it's like no i i mean if you are a for hire dj if you're a mobile dj if you're doing a wedding if you're doing something like that you have to deal with the request and you have to accommodate it. And sometimes, to be honest, and I'm not encouraging requests, a good request is a good suggestion. And if I know it's going to make people dance more and it makes sense to play, I will find a way to play it. But sometimes I'm just like, I mean, most of the time, I'm like, nah, no. Yeah, and I asked that question. I asked yeah. that question because I'm, I'm I'm usually the drunk guy at the weddings that yeah. will be like... And I'm that drunk guy too. But, but, but the thing is, I, I do it out of love because I hear it fitting good into their set. It's not just because I just want to hear my song. It's like, yo, this shit will sound dope with everything you're doing right now. Please play this. So it's like, I, I try not to be a dick about it, but I get how it could be annoying. You don't know if that's what they're thinking or, you know, or you don't know like this. When you go to a club, it's like, you don't know where they're going with it. I mean, a good request is a good idea. Like, sometimes I've revisited songs because someone's like, can you play it? I'm like, oh, I totally forgot about it. Like, because, we, because I talked about excellency, I'm telling you, now I'm going to bring excellency back. It's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to enter my sets, you know? And that's the conversation that, in some way, that's part of the conversation you're having with your audience, for sure. But requests are often... Uh, there's an... Ex it's it's the way it happens. It's like, can you please play it? Play it now. They're waiting. They're expectant. You know, they're wanting the most obvious song. You, If you want to play it, you want to play it when you think is the right time. You know, DJing, the art of it is like when to play something. You know, you don't play something too soon. You know, I think about those things a lot. Well, it's that, it's that thing, too. It's like, do you cater to that one person when it's like you're reading the whole room, right? It's, uh, exactly. it's like a tug and of war, I guess. And they might be representative of some part of the room, and, they, you know, it might be a good idea. Um, and, you know, accommodating requests can really help you. Like, if it's, if, it's, if it's a good vibe and it's a good song, you know, like, when I do, when I do, do the occasional parties, I'm, like, looking for I, I really spend a lot of time asking people what they like musically. I want to, I like the challenge of fitting in their musical taste into what will work for the room and personalizing it, you know? And if they have bad musical taste, I'm like, this is for cocktail hour, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's very personal. So, you know, you can think about it when you're hanging with your friends. <laughs> okay, dope. Uh, 
Come on, thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, we really appreciate the the insight. Uh, but before we wrap up, um, it is early June as we're recording this episode. Um, and what I just want to get a, a, a sense of what the vibe is like where you're staying as far as uh, the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter movement there. Um, well, the vibe right now is, is a little like we're still in pandemic mode in New York. And people have not been going out, but these protests have brought tons and tons and tons and tons of people out. But uh, New York has just imposed a curfew, which is a dangerous, terrible idea. And uh, I think people are, this is a tipping point in a critical moment, you know? And it takes a long time for people to get here. I mean, I remember the Trayvon protests and the Michael Brown protests and the Eric Gardner protests. And, you know, this is different. This feels different. Um, so people are really fed up with the cops. They're sick of it. And the cops are showing themselves over and over again. You're seeing journalists, you're seeing white journalists from established media organizations being like, what the fuck just happened? They're like, oh, this is a dose of, you know, uh, black and brown people's reality on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, just before on. we wrap up, we like to end every show with having everybody that was present on the on the episode to name one thing that they're grateful for. Uh, it could be a possession or an object that you have. It could be a person in your life. It could be just any energy that you want to honor right now. I'm grateful for my community. That's dope. And my community of Jackson Heights. Let me be specific. That's yeah. not my. That's not just. That's not really my Daisy community. I, I love where I live. That's dope. Uh, last time I was in Queens, it was mm-hmm. for a for a Punjabi soccer tournament, and what? yeah, and it was honestly, it was like uh, I had Where never was been. It? To... it must have been in South Queens in Richmond Hill or something, right? Honestly, or no, probably I'm, I'm so bad with American geography, so mm-hmm. uh. I don't know exactly where it is, but it was right in the epicenter of where all the Desis are because we got pulled left, right, and center to people's houses. And, oh, so you must you know, have been. You're probably in Richmond Hill. Probably. Is, I, w- yeah, I wouldn't yeah. know. But uh, it, it was great to see such a thriving, uh, not even just a Punjabi community, but a South Asian community. And mm-hmm. it, it was cool to see because it's like, you know, you get used to the South Halls, the Bramptons, the Surreys, and and a lot of these other major hubs kind of get forgotten about. But New York mm-hmm. has always been this staple. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was there uh, a lot quicker than a lot of other areas, right? It's been there for a while, and it's consistently growing. So uh, Yeah, hope, I mean, hope... yeah, definitely. We'd love to have you we'll do a little food tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh we'd like to uh thank you for taking the time out and speaking to us it was uh it was very informative we've been fans from afar but oh, getting to speak I, to I, you listen, you were i follow your music noisy i play your music I, I you know i appreciate what you guys do and what you're what you're about no thank you thank you so much that means a lot yeah you got anything yeah um as, as we were kind of talking a little bit about earlier i'm grateful for just being raised around different types of music um so we didn't have a lot of music in my house like where i lived we had a lot of kirtan in there but when i'd go to my cousin's house they always had you know as gong and hans raj hans and jazzy b they had all that stuff so i kind of that was my um, exposure to punjabi music and pangra but then my other cousin that's where i got my exposure to hip-hop 
because like they had they, they were older they were like seven eight years older mm-hmm. so that's i would go there they had the wu-tangs the biggies mm-hmm. nwa all that sort of stuff so yeah. it was like that's different households yeah <laughs> like different households would expose me to different things and then the neighborhood i grew up in as well malta and there's a big uh caribbean population there yeah. So we would always hear reggae and soca and dancehall. Just mm-hmm. it was just like a melting pot of different types of music. And yeah, I'm just grateful that I was exposed to all of that and just allowing me to appreciate different types of music. Yeah. Same. Same here. I, I I'm very fortunate to have that exposure. Uh, I'll go along the same lines as you guys. Um, you know, just bringing up Mokit just brought back so many memories and. I'm grateful for, there's a very, like, uh, my parents always show me this, uh, like, uh, cassette video, or like a video cassette of me, uh, they would always use, like, when everybody had the big sound system stations mm-hmm. with the, with the glass door and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, my parents <laughs> my would always play, player. yeah, and, and my parents would always play Mokit, and they would always do this thing, like, whenever we had family parties, they'd be like, go, turn off the, turn off the song, right? Because it was my favorite, Mokit used to be my favorite. So they, I, they'd turn it off, and then here would, me and my diaper would come running around, and I would turn it back on, right? <laughs> so it's like, it, it's like, uh, and I, this is a video that kept showing me as I grew up. And it's like, my mom always says, she's like, yo, your love for music and the reason why why you got into hip hop and you started writing and stuff like that, like a lot has to do with just music being played. And like, my, my parents aren't necessarily like, they, they're not musicians, but music was also very important in our household. So in a sense, uh, I'm really grateful that I that I had that because without that, I don't feel like music would have been such a big part of my life. And uh, my parents just got back from Norway just recently, so they're on quarantine. Uh, they're one week through, another week to go. So they've been sitting in the room. Uh, me and my wife have been dropping them off dinner every day. So I'm thankful for them, and uh, I'm thankful for them to actually quarantining. Because as we know with our community, <laughs> it's um, not easy to keep oh them at home. God, it's so not. <laughs> nope. It's so not. I'm, I'm having those fights on the daily. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah, but yeah, no, this has been fun, guys. Yeah, Thanks thank you so, so much, man. much, so much thank appreciated. Um, where, uh, where can the people reach you on all, on uh, all platforms? DJ Reka R E K H A on all platforms. Once again, thank you so much. We appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us, and hopefully, it sparks the mind of many people who look like us who want to be DJs or whatever they want to be in life. And that is why we created this show. And It's like people like you who open the doors for a lot of us. So thank you very much. Thank you. And with that being said, this has been another episode of the Immigrant Hustle Podcast. Okay.